You're listening to B2B Nation, a podcast from Technology Advice designed to help marketers navigate the modern B2B buyer's journey. Here's your host, Mike Pastor. Product positioning. It's one of the fun parts of marketing, in my personal opinion. But like a lot of things that are fun, product positioning is more fun when you're getting it right and you're enjoying success. I'm Mike Pastor from Technology Advice. On this episode of B2B Nation, we're talking to April Dunford about how to attain product positioning success. April is a product positioning expert who wrote maybe not the book on product positioning, but a very good book on product positioning called Obviously Awesome. One of the fascinating things about product positioning to me is that your plans as a marketer or as a business for your product's positioning are not as important as many people think. Customers have a funny way of influencing how your product is positioned for the market. And if you have grand plans about creating a new category for your product, April has some thoughts to share on that idea as well. Have a listen. April Dunford, welcome to B2B Nation. Why don't you take a minute and tell us who you are and what you do? Uh, well, it's really good to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so I'm a positioning expert. So uh, I spent 25 years of my career being a repeat vice president of marketing at a series of startups. But five years or so ago, I decided, uh, you know, that was maybe enough of that. And I wanted to do something different. So I transitioned to consulting. Um, today, I work with uh, mainly B2B tech companies. And my focus is on positioning. I don't do anything else. Positioning is my jam. And you are the author of a book about positioning. Yeah, I do have a book. I wrote a book a couple of years ago. It's called Obviously Awesome. And it's it, what it is, is an attempt to document my positioning methodology. So, you know, positioning is not a new topic. It's been around for a long time. Um, but I was frustrated that there were books out there that talked about positioning in a very conceptual way. Um, but there wasn't really a resource to go to if you wanted to actually learn how to do positioning. And so that's, that's what I'm attempting to solve in my book. So my book's the methodology of how I do positioning when I'm working with clients and how I used to do it back when I was working inside companies. There's so many roles in the modern marketing organization, probably more than there were like 10, 15 years ago, when you think about all the data roles and the analysis that goes on. Mm-hmm. How did you develop an interest in product positioning? How did that become your niche? Yeah, you know what's funny about that? Uh, here's how it happened. So I'm a bit of an accidental marketer. So I actually have a degree in systems design engineering, but my first job was at a startup as a product marketer. And I got assigned to uh, to a failing product. <laughs> and the product was failing, it wasn't selling. And one of the first things that I was uh, assigned to do was to go and call customers and find out how mad would they be if we end of life the product. And so I, I did 100 customer calls and 94 of those customers weren't gonna be sad at all. In fact, they weren't even using the thing. Um, you had nowhere to go but up. Yeah, that's right. So they weren't going to use the thing. So it's like, okay, fine, we're going to end a life this thing. However, there were six people that were all doing something fairly similar with the product, which was something that it was never designed to do. And they loved it. And they were going to be extremely sad if we ended life did. So I brought this, this insight back to the team and said, you know, good news, bad news. Good news is the very vast majority of people aren't going to be sad if we turn this thing off. Uh, bad news is, is there's, there's few that are going to be really sad. 
And so what we decided to do is instead of end of lifeing the product, we actually did, uh, we repositioned it. So we took it and we repositioned it for this other use case in a completely different market, which changed everything. Like the pricing was different. The way we sold it was different. Everything was different, but the product was kind of the same. And so we just repositioned it. What we thought it was, was desktop productivity software. Like it was kind of like a Microsoft access killer. And instead we repositioned it as an embeddable database for mobile devices, pretty different thing. Um, however, uh, after the repositioning, the thing took off. So it, it sold like crazy. We grew really, really, really fast. Um, we got acquired by a big company in the Valley. Um, after the acquisition, my, my boss quit and I became the head of the marketing department. And this thing just kept growing and growing and growing at its peak. It was hundreds of millions of revenue. And so that first experience really opened my eyes to the idea that you can have a product that is actually amazing, but if it is mispositioned, it might fail. And so this convinced me that, you know, if you could get the positioning right on a product, it may mean the difference between life and death. <laughs> and from that point forward, I got really, really interested in you know, if, if this is so important and it's kind of the underpinning of a lot of what we do in marketing, how do we actually do it well? And so that became sort of a thing that I've thought about a lot for the next like 20 years when I'm still thinking about it. What are the common mistakes people make with product positioning? And hearing mm -hmm. you tell that story, I think I know what some of this answer is going to be, but let's hear it from the expert. Yeah. So the, mo the most common mistake is... Um, we kind of don't do it deliberately. We just kind of fall into it. So, you know, we have this idea, you know, and we wake up in the morning and we say, you know what, the world needs a better database or the world needs better email or the world needs a better CRM. And then we go build it and we put it out in the market. And, you know, generally it doesn't go the way we think it was going to go. <laughs> so generally we're not exactly correct on who's going to love our stuff and why and how it's going to work. So we end up adding things to it. We take things away. The market itself, meanwhile, is shifting as well. So competitors are coming in and out. Um, and, and you fast forward a couple of years and the thing that you thought was going to be a database or a CRM or email, um, you know, you fast forward a few years and maybe it looks more like chat. Or maybe it looks more like you know, team collaboration or something that you weren't exactly thinking of when you built it. And, and so customers get a look at your thing and they're like, I don't know, man, they're calling it a database, but it doesn't seem like a database. I think it might be stupid. And I just ignore it. <laughs> and so I think the biggest mistake we make is, you know, we assume we just kind of fall into positioning by accident and then if it doesn't work, we kind of don't ever go back to deliberately reposition it. So I, I think the number one mistake is we just ignore it. And then two, when we do think that maybe the positioning is, is wrong, we don't deliberately go through a process to find the best possible positioning for the product that we got. Do people make the mistake of falling in love with their product? I designed this to be a database. And then the customers get a hold of it and they yeah. say, well, no, actually it's something else. I, I think they fall in love with the idea of what it is and, it, and it's hard to get people off that. Like if we're talking about positioning, like, like literally I worked for a company where we had a database and we ended up repositioning it as a business intelligence tool. And so 
And like, I remember having a conversation with the founder where he was like, we are database people. <laughs> and so it was like, it was, it was right, like baked into their identity that, you know, it wasn't just, this was a database. It was like, we are database people with PhDs and database stuff building a database. Don't you come in here, marketing lady, and tell me it ain't that. Um, but if you looked at how people were using the database, uh, you know, they were using it for analytic purposes. And so we were not a general purpose database, which is what people thought when we said it was a database. In fact, it was something that was used just for analysis, just on very large amounts of data. Like really it was more like a data warehouse or a business intelligence tool that made a lot more sense to position it in that context. But I think what you get is, you know, folks in the company, they're not necessarily thinking about it from a customer's point of view that's trying to figure this thing out, you know, and they have no clue what it is. Um, and we're not thinking about, well, what's the best way to kind of contextualize this thing so people can figure it out? We're just like, hey, we're database people building database stuff. What else could it be? The market has a funny way of telling you what your product is, right? <laughs> Even if you think it's one thing. Oh, they surprise you all the time, right? Like, we, you know, we can we can try our best to do good customer discovery before we build something and interview people. But, you know, what happens is sometimes we get out there and people we never imagined would like our stuff, like our stuff. And they pull it in a direction that we never thought it would go. But now it is there. And then it's like, okay, well, how do we react to that? That's a tough pivot, I'm sure, for a lot of companies because oh, super hard. Yeah. yeah you you but. are fixated on what you thought you had and then the market tells you you have something else and now it's like, well, there goes the game plan. Well, right? that, this is it. And it's generally what, what's interesting about it is you generally get way more resistance to this kind of a shift internally than you do externally. You shift it and externally, everyone's like, oh, good. I always thought you were that. That's great. Nothing <laughs> 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 makes sense to me. That's great. You're right? coming but to me. Externally, <laughs> there's this, you know, again, there's this angst, right? Like, I don't know. We built it for this. And uh, we've always thought about ourselves this way. And now, and, and quite often a shift in positioning is, you know, it's not just about the words you use in marketing, like quite often it requires a shift in pricing, a shift in go-to-market strategy, a shift in the way you sell, and, and ultimately ends up shifting the way you think about the product in the future. So it'll, it'll you know, impact what you've got planned on the roadmap and everything else. So, so it, these are big decisions. They're not, you know, they're not little things that you just like, oh, you know, I woke up today and decided, hey, we're not selling databases anymore. We're selling business intelligence. Well, that's actually a big company changing decision to make that shift. So yeah, it's hard. Is it hard to position something that is something new? Like, mm -hmm. okay, databases, if you're in tech, you're familiar with what a database is. Yeah. You're familiar with what BI is. But some things like you don't want them to fall into the popular buckets, right? You want to be something different. Is that a, that's a completely different challenge. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter what you want, right? So what matters is how customers perceive it. And so you may want to have to, you know, and I get a lot of this right now. People come and say, we want to create a new category. But the product that they have simply isn't that. <laughs> And so, it, it, you know, and, and, and so then we get into this debate about, well, why do you want to create a new category? Well, because we think that that'll, we'll make more money because the, the, the category will be there and we'll win the category. And it's like, okay, well, if what you want is to make more money, 
then wouldn't it make sense to position this thing in a way where it's the easiest for people to figure out? And everybody will agree, like, yes, that's that's exactly what we want. And it's like, okay, so if it was easy to figure out positioning it in, in a in an existing category, but in a section of an existing category, why wouldn't you just do that? They're like, well, a section of existing category doesn't sound very big, and I don't want that. And it's like, yeah, but it's not like we're going to set the positioning and never touch it again. That's not how this works. Like, right. it's going to evolve over time. So, you know, you might start out being, uh, you know, the best possible CRM for investment bankers, and that might sound like a really narrow market. But once you've sold all the investment bankers, what does that give you permission to do? Well, it gives you permission to sell to all the other divisions inside the bank. And then it gives you permission to sell into the retail bank. So now what are you? Well, now you're CRM for banking. Well, once we've sold all of that, now where do we have permission to go sell? Well, we sell to insurance because retail banks do insurance too. Well, now I'm CRM for financial services. And in fact, at that point, if I've won all the banking and all the insurance, I'm a giant CRM company at that point, and I might just be CRM for big enterprises. And, and right. so that's how that's going to progress. So people get all worried that, you know, if they don't invent a giant market category and then occupy that, they'll never get to a giant place. But in fact, that's not how it works. Like if you look at most of the big companies that we know and love today, they started out as niche plays in existing market. They were not category creators. So that's why we're using Google and not Ask Jeeves. That's why we're using Facebook and not MySpace. That's why nobody knows what a creative MP3 player is. And BlackBerry is a small company. So like, like the vast majority of tech companies, when they started out, were not category creators. Now, once you're big, that's different. So once you're, you know, once I've utterly dominated my market, like Salesforce is a great example, right? So Salesforce started out as a niche play in the CRM existing market. And they sold to very, very small businesses that didn't have an IT department because their killer feature was no software because we're going to run it on SaaS. You don't even need an IT department to do it. Before that, if you wanted CRM, that was a big thing that your IT department bought and they had to install and configure and blah, blah, blah. Salesforce showed up and said, look, even your puny little team with five people on it can have CRM and here's how we do it. And so they were a niche play in the CRM market. And part of the reason they grew so fast is because they weren't trying to invent something new that nobody understood. They just came in and said, yeah, we're just like what, we're just like what Siebel does. And they're 2 billion revenue, except we're making it usable for you in a small company. Now, if you look at what they're doing now, now they're a giant company and they're worth billions. And, and now you can say, well, we're, you know, platform as a service and they can invent all kinds of new categories. And that's easy to do once you're a giant, giant company. But if you're a little wee startup and you're trying to figure out at the beginning, creating a new market category is actually the hardest thing you can do for two reasons. One is... I got I to gotta convince you that this category should exist, which usually involves you, me selling you on the problem. Because if, if everybody knew they had the problem, then a category of solutions would exist, right? So first, I got to sell you on the problem. That's going to take years. So I'm going to say, you know what? I'm not a CRM. I'm not a database. I'm a flu flummer. And then you say, what the heck's a flu flummer? And I say, oh, I'm glad you asked that question. Let me explain it to you. You know, flu flummers are important. And then, I, you know, I'm going to give you the pitch. Well, it's going to take me years to make flu flummer a thing, years. And I'm going to invest a ton of money doing that. 
So not only do I need outside investment, I need a lot of it. And those investors, those investors better be patient because this is going to take me a while. And then what happens? The minute flu flummers are a thing, like the minute customers start saying, you know what's cool? Flu flummers are cool. I think we got to get one of those flu flummers. The minute that happens, what happens? A thousand fast followers show up that are well-funded with brand new money and their investors aren't exhausted because they haven't been at this for 10 years trying to make it a thing. They just, they just show up and say, yeah, we're one of those two only better. And we got a hundred million <laughs> bucks in the bank to go make that happen. That's how Facebook happened. That's how Google happened. That's how most big tech companies happen. So do you want to be the one that created the category really? Or do you want to be the one that gets to capitalize on all that hard work and just come in and make the money? So right now there's a bit of a there's a bit of an obsession with category creation, but I think it's I think it's kind of the the, the it's it's kind of the way you sometimes you have no choice because the, the the market is emerging and you're the solution for an emerging thing. Like we see this in in you know there's a lot of stuff in like I I had a company that I know here in Canada that was um, in the smart glasses space, and so smart glasses is an interesting case of this, right? Like Google blew their brains out trying to create that category, failed to capitalize on it. And now it's kind of wide open spaces. If you want to buy smart glasses, who owns that market? Nobody knows, right? So maybe it's you, like maybe you can do that. So this company, I know they raised a lot of money. They had a really great design. Then they launched this thing and their plan was to be the, you know, the guys that are going to like be the leaders in the smart glasses space. And then the end of that story is they end up getting bought by Google, but um, you know, which isn't a bad exit for any of those guys, but the market's still wide open. So sometimes there's no other thing to do, but to kind of, you know, be in this new market and create the market and then, and then capitalize on it. But if there's it's certainly not what you want to do, like if you have the choice of positioning in an existing market and making yourself differentiated, but understandable in that existing market, then that's a much easier way to go to market. And it is, it's in 90% of the time, successful companies, that's what they do. Or at least that's where they start. On the buyer side, I feel like there's a certain comfort in existing markets because everything is sort of designed to help you buy in an existing market. You look at the analyst firms, the magic quadrants, the waves from Forrester, like here is the category, here are the players, here are their strengths and weaknesses. And when you come in and somebody's not on any of that, what do you do with them? Like, where do they fit? So. Well, again, that's it. It's like you're showing up and you're like, we're none of those things. And they're like, well, so what are you? And you got to go all the way back to the problem. You got to say, well, look, like there's this market for this problem and this market for this problem and this for this problem. And look, there's this problem in the middle here. No one solves that. Yeah. And if you have to explain to them what their problem is, it's probably not a problem worth their investment. Right? Well, it's it's hard, that's for sure. But a lot of times we have kind of emerging problems that customers aren't aware of yet. And the first thing we got to do is make them aware of it. And then we and then we sell them on our stuff. And it does happen, you know, like smart glass is a great example. Like I don't have a problem that smart glasses solves. <laughs> But if you ask me in five years, I bet I got a pair. Like, <laughs> so sometimes that you know, sometimes these things emerge, and and I believe in that. But but it is harder, right? It's it's harder. It would have been very hard for, you know, if Salesforce started out saying, "Hey, we're you should buy our thing because it's platform as a service." Everybody be like, "What's platform as a service?" Why, why do I, you know, as opposed to coming in and saying, "We're CRM. We're, we all know what a CRM is. We're CRM for small businesses. Our killer feature is the fact that we're SaaS." 
easy. Yeah. And CRM was a story that the business leaders, the sales leaders understood because they knew what that was. There Everybody may have been, you don't have to tell me what that is, right? There may know. have been people on the dev side in the IT department who had an idea of this emerging platform as a service, but they weren't going to get the salespeople to buy a platform as a service when what they wanted was a CRM. But again, right? It's like, it's like, well, I don't even know what a platform as a service is. Why do I want one of those? What is the problem that that solves? I don't know. And so, you know, again, it's, it's new category creations tricky, right? And it's not like it never happens. Like, so in my book, you know, I went looking for an example of a company that set out to create a new category and then successfully created it and then won the category. And the only example I could find was um, Eloqua. And so, and, and Eloqua was and part of the reason I came up with that one is because the guy is local. So Mark Organ is the founder of Eloqua. And, and he had this great story about how, you know, he identified this emerging type of marketer that was doing demand gen stuff and they were weird and they were using spreadsheets and numbers and things. And unlike the, the marketers of the day, they were all just doing branding and whatever, there were these numbers people. And so he wanted to be a platform that automated that. And so he originally called himself demand gen automation. That's what the category was. And at the time that didn't exist. Um, but if you were going to sell to demand gen people, we say, we're going to automate what you do. So you're the demand gen guy, we're demand gen automation. And then eventually demand gen just took off. And then every company was hiring demand gen people like crazy. And then eventually everything, what we were doing in marketing was really focused on demand gen if you were B2B. And so he shifted the naming to marketing automation and that's how it came to be. But, you know, hearing him tell the story, it's interesting. It's, I don't know if it's so much that he, I don't think he created a market out of nothing. I think that market emerged and his solution emerged with it. He, he was working as a consultant in Bain and he identified this thing. He said, look, I'm seeing more and more of these people. I predict that this is going to be a big thing in the future. And if I'm the software to run that, that's going to be a big deal. And that's, smart entrepreneurship is what that is. Like that's more than just luck. That's being able to see a thing. He made a big bet on a thing and he wrote it all the way out. And then of course, Eloqua went on to be a giant company, went public, got acquired, everybody made money. It's all good. <laughs> you, you, alluded to, <laughs> you alluded to this next question in the, the story you told about how you got started in positioning. What are the signs that a product's positioning is off? The obvious one up is going to be lack of sales, right? Like your story well, you know, you can have lack life. of sales for lots of reasons, right? You can have lack right. of sales because your product's terrible. You can have lack <laughs> of sales because your sales team can't sell. I mean, there's a lot of things that could impact sales that aren't positioning. Here's what I see as the most common um, sign of weak positioning. So you've got existing customers and they love you. So you go to the existing customers and they're like, oh, this thing's amazing. You know, never, ever take it away from me. I love this thing so much. So you got existing customers and they're happy as clams. So, you know, the product works, at least for some people, right? And when they get it, these people love it. But you have this thing in the early stages of your sales cycle where people just do not get it. So you'll see it in sales calls. If you sit in on sales calls, you'll have good salespeople doing a pitch and they'll get partway through the pitch and the, and the customer will be like, Whoa, back it up. You know what? So pitch it to me again. Like, what is this thing? Or worse, they'll say things like, I, I think I get it. So you're like Salesforce. And you're like, oh, God, we're nothing like Salesforce. <laughs> like, we're not a CRM. We're not that at all. <laughs> so what there is, is like the people that have your stuff 
get it and love it. But there's something in the way you're positioning it that is that is that is confusing to people. And there's a gap between how you're talking about it and what the reality of this product is. And the positioning is not closing that gap. So these people are coming in with the idea that it's something that it's not, that it's whatever, and they're just, it's just not clicking. That is generally a positioning problem. Let's talk about the methodology that you outline in your book. Obviously awesome. What about positioning have you found to be repeatable and successful for marketers who are trying to figure out their positioning? Yeah. So that was kind of my whole thing at the beginning. I was like, okay, so we have this positioning thing and, and it seems super important uh, is kind of the underpinning of everything we're doing in marketing. So how do we actually do this in a repeatable way? And so the first product that we repositioned, we just kind of messed around with it until we got it. And I thought, well, that seems inefficient. Like, how could we have known that our embeddable database for mobile devices, how could we have figured that out sooner without just kind of lucking into it? So we, what we had was bad positioning and then we had good positioning. Like, how could we avoid that bad positioning in the first place? That was my question to myself. And so at first I thought, you know what? I don't know this because I haven't gone to marketing school because I, you know, I have a degree in systems design engineering, but so, you know, but I'm in the marketing department now. So I'm like, I better go to marketing school. I'll figure this out. So I buy a bunch of books and, uh, and I read this book, Positioning the Battle for Your Mind. It's a great book. You should read it. It's by these guys, Reason Trout. Everybody, if you're interested in positioning, that's the book that you read. And what the book does, it does this great job of explaining what positioning is and getting you all excited about it. What it doesn't do is tell you how to do it. Like you get to the end of the book and you're like, but wait, <laughs> how do I, how when do I does, actually- When does the sequel come out? Yeah, yeah right. And so the, it turned out these guys ran an advertising agency and you were supposed to call them and they were going to do it for you. So I called them and it cost like a half a million bucks to hire them. And I was working at a startup. So I'm like, okay, that's not going to happen. So, um, so then I got talking to senior marketing people and stuff and how do you do this? And one of the things kept coming up was this positioning statement. And so people said, oh, this is how you do it. And so I actually took a course and the professor came out and he said, here's how you do positioning. It's a positioning statement. And this is like a Mad Libs fill in the blanks thing. We are a blank that does blank for blanky blank blank. You fill in the blanks. And so he's explaining how this works. And I had just repositioned this thing. And there's a blank in there that says market category. And he says, well, you just fill it in the market category. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, so I got this thing that I think is desktop productivity software, but is actually better positioned as an embeddable database for mobile devices. Those are two pretty different market categories. How do I know which one goes in the blank? So I put my hand up like, hey, professor, you know, and, and you know, and, like, and I explained the whole story. Yeah, I just did this thing. And, blah, blah, blah. and I'm like, so how do we know? How do we know which one is the best one to write in the blank? Like, where's the methodology for that? And, he, and what the guy said to me is he like, he did this whole professor thing. Like he looked at me down his glasses and he says, and I'm like, how do you know? How do you know? And he's like, trust me, April, you'll just know. And I'm like, that's bull crap. <laughs> Thanks, Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> just know and we were very smart people <laughs> and and we did not just know so i don't i'm not trusting you buddy like trust me we don't know so then i thought well there's got to be a way to do this so so i st here's how i started so i said look we know what the component pieces of positioning are because we agree on that and so the component pieces of there's five component pieces component pieces are competitive alternatives unique 
features or capabilities of your product, your differentiated value or what, you know, what can you do for customers? Which customers are we talking about? So your, your segmentation and who the customers are. And then the last bit is market category. Are we a database or a business intelligence tool? What is the market we intend to win? These are the five pieces. They kind of correspond to roughly the blanks in a typical positioning statement. So we know what those are. So I'm like, okay, if we want great positioning, it would seem to me that what we would have to do is figure out the best answer for each of the component pieces. And then, then we figure out how to slap them together and then voila, good positioning. So I'm like, okay, that's good. So then I got, but then if you look at that, the first thing you realize is the component pieces are not independent. They actually all have a relationship to each other. So if, if I take any piece of it, like value, the differentiated value that my product provides to customers is absolutely dependent on my differentiated features. That's where it comes from. It doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from that. But my differentiated features are only differentiated if I compare them to a competitive alternative. So these three things are all really related. They're not independent. And then you get into it. You're like, well, who's my best fit customer? My best fit customer, these are people that care the most about my differentiated value. So I can't figure one out without the other. And then the last bit is the market I intend to win. Well, you know, that's a little bit more esoteric, but if you think about it, my best market category is the context that I position my product in such that this value is obvious to these people. So I can't figure out market category, what my best market category is until I know value and customer segment. So I got five things, they all relate to each other. Where do I start? And this vexed me. So, you know, and the more I looked at it, the more I was like, there isn't a starting place. This is terrible. And so I thought, well, this is why we don't have a methodology. There actually, you can't do it. You just have to create a positioning thesis. Like you pick one, you work your way around the circle, you get candidate position, you, you take it out to the market, you test it. If it works, great, we run with it. If it doesn't, you throw it out and you try again. And so for two years, that's how I did it. Like, and the problem with that was sometimes you don't get it on the first try and you got to go try it again. And, and your boss hates you and wants to fire you. <laughs> Taking all day monkeying around on this positioning. And so anyways, eventually I, how I got out of this mess was, um, it's kind of a long story, but I went, I got reading a lot of Clayton Christensen and uh, sort of looking at the jobs to be done stuff. And I had kind of an epiphany that, you actually have to start with competitive alternatives. If you don't start there, then um, th then you end up with positioning that sounds good in the office, but it doesn't actually work in the market because it's not differentiated. So you start with competitive alternatives and then you say, okay, what have I got that they don't have, which is my unique features. And then when I've got unique features, I can map those to value because that's where the value comes from. So how do those features translate to value? And then once I understand my differentiated value, then I can say, well, who cares a lot about that value? And what are the characteristics of a customer that really cares a lot about that value? That's how I get my segmentation. And then once I have that, then I can say, okay, I got this value for these people. What's the best context to position my product in that makes that value obvious to those folks? So it actually has to happen in that order. So my methodology works like that. So you get your positioning and you follow your methodology. So you don't have to do a lot of trial and error. I think you've got your positioning set. 
Yeah. How do you get the buy-in? And I'm, I'm thinking about like, I've worked with vendors where the marketing says one thing and oh, yeah. the ads say one thing and the marketing says another, and the email says another. And then when you the actually- Sales guys in, got some other story. Exactly. Yeah. How do you line everybody <laughs> up and keep them on the same page? Yeah. So that the positioning is there all the way through, I'll use a marketing term, all the way through the funnel all the way through the funnel. So this is super, super important. Like if you think about it, um, you know, it's not just marketing that positioning impacts, right? Like, it, like if I have a thing and I thought it was a database and now I think it's a business intelligence tool, well, you know, that might impact my pricing. It, it, it's going to impact my product roadmap. It's going to impact customer success. It's going to impact everything. So here's where, it, here's the reality of this. Marketing can't make this decision on their own. They don't get to just pick positioning. Like I don't get to wake up tomorrow and say, hey, you know what? We're not desktop productivity software anymore, rest of the company. We're uh, we're embeddable database for mobile devices. Okay, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> like I think the CEO is going to have something to say about that. So a shift in positioning is kind of like a shift in business strategy. So what it means is, you know, once you get your head around that is, we can't create positioning in isolation in the marketing department or in the product department. Like, so when I do positioning work, we actually get the whole team together. So we've got representation from sales, marketing, product, customer success, anybody on the executive team that needs to be there. And we need to work through the positioning together because it is critical that we are all in agreement and alignment on this positioning because each of us has our part to play to go and execute on it once we've got it. In my opinion, like it's not a matter of getting the you know marketing getting the buy-in of everyone else. The positioning needs to be created with the team together and we need to work through a structured process that helps us get to agreement and alignment on all the pieces. And then once we've got the positioning, you know, it's not, it doesn't just stay static, like it might actually change. So we also need a regular check-in to get that group back together every six months or so to check in on it and say, is it still the same? Are the competitors still the same? Are our differentiators still the same? Does our value stay the same? If not, we're going to need to adjust it. If you reevaluate every six months and some of those voices are telling you, we need to change, we need to change. It's really hard to market and sell something if the story changes every six months. So we're coming in and saying, has our competitive landscape changed? If the answer is yes, like a brand new competitor has shown up or we're starting to lose deals to a competitor we never did before, or there's been some consolidation and this company bought this company and they weren't a competitor six months ago, but today they are, you absolutely want to adjust for that. But if the answer is no, well, then why are we mucking with the positioning? Right. Like, so if nothing's changed there, if nothing's changed in our feature set or what's differentiating about our product, th then the positioning doesn't need to change. That's how we determine whether it needs to change or not. It's not because sales thinks it should or marketing thinks it should. Like, we're actually looking at the facts. Like, you know, has our competitive landscape changed? Where's the data that shows us that? If we don't have any, then, you know, why are we shifting the positioning? We shouldn't shift it. Right. All right, April Dunford, thanks for joining us on B2B Nation. Well, thanks so much for having me. That was April Dunford, product positioning expert and author of Obviously Awesome. I'm Mike Pastor from Technology Advice. We position B2B Nation as a podcast for B2B marketers by B2B marketers. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, you should subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. 
Thanks to the crew of Technology Advice, Amy Dunn, Sarah Wingate, and B2B Nation's own Commander-in-Chief, Emily Whalen. Our theme song is composed by Mnemonics in the Guild. We'll catch you next time on B2B Nation.